You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I had the last official appointment with President Kennedy before he went to Dallas. He said to me, you know, a kind of miasma of hatred is sweeping across the land these days. Veteran journalist Carl T. Rowan. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. As a young journalist in the 1950s, Carl T. Rowan covered the emerging civil rights movement and many of its leaders, including Rosa Parks and the young Martin Luther King Jr., The reputation he built eventually caught the attention of President John F. Kennedy, who in 1961 appointed Carl Rowan to a high-level position in the State Department. And then in 1963, Kennedy named him ambassador to Finland. Rowan remained in government service for three more years after the Kennedy assassination, before resuming what would turn out to be a long and very acclaimed journalism career. I met him in 1991 when he wrote a memoir called Breaking Barriers. Now, you'll hear some references in this interview to the gun incident. In 1988, about three years before this interview, Carl Rowan shot and wounded an intruder at his home. The problem was that the gun he used turned out to be unregistered and caused some problems for him. So here now, from 1991, Carl T. Rowan. Why did you write this book now? Well, uh, you know, I thought I'd uh, try to write this book before I got too old to write a full paragraph. Uh, Also, I began to think about the various careers I've had and the journey from poverty in McMinnville, Tennessee, to being on programs like this and realized that it paralleled the life of the nation, searching for its heart and soul, trying to deal with the problems of racism, education, the economy, uh, international conflicts. And uh, I realized that just as I was trying to break barriers, I couldn't do any of it alone. But I had to have friends like Harry Truman and Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson and John Coles, the publisher of the Minneapolis newspapers. And I thought uh, people might want to read Uh, the parallel stories of one man's journey and of one nation's struggle. It occurs to me, though, as the reader, that perhaps you have broken more barriers and have gone further, made more progress than the nation has in these parallel journeys. Well, one uh, would think that might be the case because I haven't uh, done much backsliding, whereas the uh, nation has lurched forward and fallen backward And uh, usually, depending on who's in the White House, one of the things I learned and point out in Breaking Barriers is that poor people and minorities make progress only in good times economically and only when you have in the Oval Office someone who's truly committed to social justice. And we haven't had uh, that social justice factor over the last decade. I was just going to say, as we head into what they have now admitted as a recession, are we? Is, is this another bleak time for minorities? Oh, yes, because a dog-eat-dog atmosphere always takes over in uh, recessions. And uh, 
people who may be inclined to accept a little affirmative action in good times don't want any of it in, in hard times. Uh, and they're totally oblivious. You know, I, I hear all this um, paranoia saying the federal government and the corporations are giving all the promotions, they're giving all the goodies to blacks. I look at the current unemployment figures. 5.3% for whites, 12.2% for blacks, 36% for black teenagers. And I say, if, if black people have been getting all these goodies, how come these figures? And nobody has an answer, but they don't. Uh, you know, when you, when you are beset by uh, uh, polarization and hostility, the facts don't uh, matter much. Do you sometimes look back at your your childhood and 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 wonder how you managed to get this far? Oh, I've done that many a time, uh, and I look back at some marvelous breaks that I got, like finding a twenty dollar bill the day I'm about to drop out of college, and I go up and pay my tuition for the next quarter, and three days later the Navy decides that for the first time in history. Mm-hmm. A black youngster could take the nationally competitive exam for becoming an officer in the Navy. And uh, I just had loads of those kinds of breaks. Right place, right time. That's right. (laughs) But it also takes the right kind of attitude to take advantage of being in the right place at the right time, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And that's uh, where I uh, had uh, one advantage. I had a mother who knew the value of trained intelligence, and she'd sit by that kerosene lamp with me at night, going through my spelling and my arithmetic. Then she'd pat me on the head and say, there can't be anybody in that school any smarter than you are. And I believed her, and that's the beginning of self-esteem. And what I'm trying to do in breaking barriers is to convince a lot of youngsters growing up the way I did that they, if they believe in themselves, they can break a lot of barriers, too. What do you tell youngsters, black youngsters today, who say it's too white to be smart? Well, I tell them that that's stupid. Uh, I tell them that learning has liberated more people than all the armies ever assembled by man. And if they want to be liberated... They have got to know the same thing this white youngster over here knows. I tell them, I can't function as a journalist if I just go to a soul food joint and eat lunch. I've got to go where James J. Kilpatrick and George Will and my competitors go. And I think that message has gotten through. You know, I run this scholarship program, Mm -hmm. Project Excellence. We've given in three years more than $800,000 to 173 kids. And in every high school in this metropolitan area today, these kids are saying, how can I win a Project Excellence scholarship? I mean, the smallest is $4,000, and the largest is $54,000. So these kids aren't listening to that dumb peer pressure as much as they used to. There's so much drama in your book, uh, so many episodes that you've been witness to or a part of. Uh, let me just choose one or two. Um, what, uh, why did President Kennedy go to Dallas that day in 1963? I had the last official appointment with President Kennedy before he went to Dallas. 
I was home on consultation from Finland, where, as you know, I was ambassador. When we finished our business, he said to me, you know, a kind of miasma of hatred is sweeping across the land these days. I gather you know what they did to Adlai Stevenson, he said. He went down to Texas and they spat on him. He said, I feel that a president has to set the tone. He has to set the mood for a nation. And uh, I've got to stand up against this. And that's why I'm going to Texas to show my face and let people know that I'm asking the American people to be better than they think they can be. After this short break, Carl Rowan tells about the jaw-dropping things J. Edgar Hoover did. Now back to my 1991 interview with Carl T. Rowan. Under Lyndon Johnson, was he, was he a, an easy man to get along with and work with? Oh, Lyndon Johnson was a tough guy to have any kind of dealings with because there were several Lyndon Johnsons. There was the Johnson who was coarse, he could be vulgar, mean, verbally abusing this, his staff. And then uh, the same guy, you see him an hour later, and uh, he's giving you a little speech showing the greatest vision and sensitivity imaginable as to where this nation ought to go. Uh, that's sensitive, Johnson. Let me tell you a little story, if I can. Mm -hmm. He said to me, you know, I went down to San Antonio to campaign for old Henry B. Gonzalez, and they had this pickup truck out in the middle of this parking lot. And there was a black guy about 80 standing up there, and they said, he's going to introduce you. And that black guy says, folks, I was born not 100 yards from where this truck is standing, and I never thought I'd live to see the day. When a black man is going to introduce a white vice president who's going to ask you all to vote for a Mexican, Johnson says, you know, tears started running down my cheek. And he leaned over and punched me in the chest and says, you know, a man ain't worth a damn if he can't cry at the right time. <laughs> He was, uh, what a fascinating character he was. He's the most fascinating of all the presidents I've had anything to do with, and uh, I, I might even say all the politicians I've ever had anything to do with. Uh, that, that encompasses a lot of people. <laughs> yes, that's right. But I tell you, uh, you get uh, a Lyndon Johnson talking about how he was going to get through the Public Accommodations Act, as he put it, so little black gals don't get their heads busted open for trying to drink a Coca-Cola at Rich's Soda Fountain in Atlanta. Or the, when he went up to that joint session of Congress and gave that speech on voting rights and said, we shall overcome, that was the one where he asked me to sit in the box up there with Lady Bird. I think he wanted a visual showing of his support for racial equality. He was very shrewd and very clever in his ability to manipulate the Congress. What did, uh, this is a difficult subject to sum up in just a few words, but what did J. Edgar Hoover have against Martin Luther King? Well, first of all, Martin Luther King had criticized the FBI's performance in the South uh, when <clears throat> 
The young girls in Sunday school were killed when the church was blown up. King was talking about how the FBI was in cahoots with Southern law officers and they couldn't find any perpetrators of these kinds of crimes. But it went on beyond that. Hoover, in fact, hated the entire civil rights movement. The guy did not believe in racial equality. He fought so hard to avoid having any black special agents in the FBI that when Bobby Kennedy and Walter Mondale were pressing him, his solution was to declare his chauffeurs as special agents. And then he could say, we have one-tenth of one percent of our force as special agents. <laughs> he, uh, he was so adamant that they wanted to run a big a sting operation in the south side of Chicago. Since he had no black agents, he got grease paint for his white agents' faces. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. And the, the telegram came back from the Chicago Bureau saying agents almost lost lives when someone noted green eyes and realized they weren't black. <laughs> that's a, the that's a truth, I'm telling you. And the guy was absolutely monstrous. And I detail in this book some things never written before because... I've seen the documents that nobody else has seen about the absolute brutality of more than 20 separate campaigns to discredit Dr. King, to try to, quote, neutralize, unquote, uh, Dr. King, to try to force him to commit suicide. It, uh, uh, it really gives you a warning about the need for the people to be vigilant and see that no law enforcement officer ever again, in fact, no president, ever gets the kind of power Hoover was wielding. Power that made presidents of the United States tremble at the thought that he had some goods with which to blackmail them. I think uh, many readers will, will appreciate the frankness with which you address late in the book the gun incident. Uh, oh, yes. I, I, I confess to, to being very uh, gratified with the honesty that, that you portray, that, that you, that you uh, uh, talk about your, your disillusionment with your, your fellow news media, your, the people who should be reporting the facts, investigating what the truth is, and printing and broadcasting what really happened and what the real facts are. Well, you know, I was just, I was shocked first and then angry to see these big headlines calling me uh, uh, the jacuzzi gunman. When the guy I shot in the wrist was 175 feet away from the jacuzzi, with a jacuzzi in the swimming pool not in sight, four feet from my patio door trying to come into my house. But as I point out, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. And uh, I, I got a letter the other day from a doctor in California talking about how I went, ran out to the swimming pool, guns blazing, and <laughs> mowed down this poor little white boy, as he put it. God, I cannot <laughs> believe. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people would just as soon not have the facts. But you're a high-profile target, too. Oh, well, I, I understood that. You know, I was a little naive at first, thinking the story might be the druggies who scaled my 10-foot fence and were having a little cigarette PCP party, uh, 
But people didn't give any hoot, give a hoot about who those folks were. All they knew was that they caught Carl Rowan, they hoped, with his gun control pants down, and they were going to make the most of it. I'm running out of time, but I did want to ask you just before we close uh, about the situation as we see it right now in the, in the Persian Gulf. What, uh, what do you think will be its ultimate resolution? Well, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I mean, I think uh, I, I've been seeing since August 3rd there would be a war. In fact, I put the odds 10 to 1 in favor of war. I think there will be another effort on the part of Saddam Hussein to, to hit Israel. Saddam wants Israel in the conflict uh, so he can portray it as a great U.S.-Israeli conspiracy and in that way arouse the passions of the entire Islamic world. And uh, there's going to be some more tough fighting and maybe the uses of some horrible weapons before it's over. Carl T. Rowan died in 2000. He was 75 years old. And you can find easy Amazon links to Carl T. Rowan's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, you can also hear my 1994 interview with Andrew Young. If you had told Martin Luther King after the speech on the March on Washington, what do you think of Andy Young being ambassador to the United Nations? He'd have laughed. And he would have said... Well, if we can ever get the right to vote, maybe some of those things will happen. As well as my 1998 interview with Congressman John Lewis. When I was growing up, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I saw segregation. I saw racial discrimination. But because of the Civil Rights Movement, those signs came tumbling down. And those signs would never, ever be seen again. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the single mom who built a relationship with her troubled teenage daughter through music and turned that into a smash career. My 1993 interview with country music superstar Naomi Judd. We broke all the rules. We didn't have the demo tape to play anybody, or an 8x10 even. We didn't know anybody, but we got signed on the spot. We cut an album before we'd ever appeared anywhere, before we ever had a band. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. ¶¶